Open the Word of God with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, and we come to the 22nd verse, and a sentence that runs through the 24th verse, that is the most definitive and weightiest statement in the Word of God about God's purpose in the condemnation and salvation of two respective classes of men. We should tremble before this passage, and we should rejoice as we find it describing the vessels of mercy that he had afore prepared into glory, that he might make known to them the riches of his glory. Even out of the Gentiles, which covers us. Amen. I read to you verses 22 through 24. What if God, willing to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Amen Amen and amen. What can be said against this declaration of God's will in the condemnation of some men and the salvation of other men? It is obviously of salvation to eternal life, not of mere national privilege as Jews, because it includes Gentiles. The 24th verse says, Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. It disregards the nation of the Jews by only choosing some of Israel, and it includes Gentiles being only some of the Gentiles. And in Christ, we together have been formed into one body, which is his church, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. By God's grace, I want to exalt, glorify, and magnify the God of heaven as high as I can declare Him. I cannot and will not preach a big granddaddy in the sky that wants to give you cotton candy for Christmas. I cannot and will not with Billy Graham and others preach that God cannot save you against your will. I cannot and will not with Billy Bright who wrote the four spiritual laws that are so heretical that God wants to save everyone if they will just cooperate. If God is truly as I shall now preach Him, then you owe Him everything you are, everything you have, and everything you will ever be or have. If God is not as I now preach Him, then the Bible is a book of fables. Because from the beginning to its end, it consistently describes a God like the one in Romans 9, 22 through 24. 
The only ignorance of this God is a willful ignorance by rejecting the historical facts of what He's done to the children of men already. Because they do not want to retain God in their knowledge. God gives them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient, which includes the heresy of Arminianism. I thank God that when we read John 3.16, we know that the love of God is toward a world that is no larger than the world of those that will never be separated from the love of God. Jesus will say to many in that day, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That is separation. Depart means to separate from company. He never loved them. The love of God is toward the world of His believers, toward the world of His elect, made up of Jews and Gentiles. This passage and subject are dreadful and terrible. Just what we need to properly fear the Lord Jehovah and start our shouting now in thanksgiving and praise for His glorious grace in saving us through Jesus Christ our Lord. For the righteous, hearing this sermon, give thanks to God that before Romans 9, you had Romans 5. And before Romans 9, you had Romans 8. Where it says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Let's not forget the order of this epistle. So that when we get here, and though it is separated by days and weeks between sermons, Romans 5 has already been covered where we find in Jesus Christ a second Adam, that by whose obedience we have been made righteous, that life and righteousness might reign by the Lord Jesus Christ as sin and death have reigned by the first Adam. Keep those things in mind. Now, my brethren and the children, we want them to know Romans nine twenty two through 24. Brianna, I want you to know it. I want you to look at Romans 9, 22 through 24 and see that it starts out with a what, which forms a question, and the question mark is at the end of the 24th verse. Can you look at your Bible and see that question mark at the end of the 24th verse? We are going to look at each word by God's grace, and hopefully we'll be able to cover this text today. This is a question The Apostle Paul liked to reason with questions. Rhetorical questions that have an obvious answer. And this one has an obvious answer that I hope I can make very plain to you. There are eight questions between the 14th verse and the 24th verse. You can find questions by question marks. There's eight of them because the Apostle Paul likes to ask questions. In the 14th verse, he said, what shall we say then? There's a question. Is there unrighteousness with God? There's a question. And here's the answer. God forbid. Here's a question. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? In verse 19, for who hath resisted his will? Here's an answer. Nay, but, O man. And here's a question. Who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, 
Why hast thou made me thus? Here's another question. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Look at those questions and the obvious answers that you do not have a right to question God or to ask Him for an explanation because He is God and you are His creature. He is the maker and you have been formed. You are but a vessel of the potter made from one lump of clay. Though this is formed as a rhetorical question, it is not truly a question at all, but a powerful declaration and statement of God's sovereign government of all men, including condemnation and salvation, including eternal torment in the lake of fire, and including eternal glory in the presence of God. It's a declaration, but it's in the form of a rhetorical question in order for you to see it connected to verses 20 and 21. It rhetorically asks of God's eternal purposes in condemnation and salvation, leaving you silent and without any ground to object or question about what is declared here. What forms the question? But it truly asks, who do you think you are and what do you think you're going to say and what do you think you're going to do to stop this action of the potter? What if? What if God reprobates men and has fitted them to eternal destruction and made them vessels of wrath His wrath. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to say in question? What are you going to ask in the way of explanation? That is what it's in a question for. And I tremble as I preach to you. If I'm wrong, I'm guilty of the greatest caricature of the God of heaven. And I'll answer for it when I see Him. But we've staked our doctrine, our faith, our lives and our future on the Word of God, and it's plain. He's daring you with a question. Who in the world do you think you are? Your question already, why doth the yet find fault for who hath resisted his will, in number 19, verse 19, was out of line? What do you think you're going to do about this one? If you think that it was hard to read about Pharaoh in verse 18 and a question came up in your mind about Pharaoh from verses 17 and 18, what are you going to do with this statement? This isn't about Pharaoh. This is about you. And this is about your relatives. And this is about the citizens of your nation. And this is about the inhabitants of the earth. This is about your race. This is about your species. That is what the what is there for. What if? What are you going to say then? What are you going to ask then? What are you going to do then? How are you going to stop it? What are you going to do about it? Is why it's in a question. So that you can see the connection to what's gone before. What can we argue against this declaration of condemnation and salvation? It is obvious that this is talking about eternal condemnation of men to the lake of fire. And it is obvious 
that it is talking about eternal glory of men in the presence of God for which they were afore prepared. This has nothing to do with national privilege or the nation of Israel because it involves only some of Israel. I know I'm repeating myself. And it involves only some of the Gentiles found in the 24th verse. Those little Armenians that have never studied any deeper than John 3.16 in the Bible, and that they don't even come close to grasping. Those that take Revelation chapter 3.20 and think that Jesus, a John Lennon lookalike, is walking the streets of L.A., knocking on men's hearts, begging them to let him in. They have no idea about the Bible or the God of the Bible. And they want to make this passage dealing with national privileges when the purpose of Jesus Christ coming in the New Testament was to undo national privileges and exalt spiritual blessings which are in Christ Jesus our Lord where we were chosen before the world began, whether Jew or Gentile. What if... The Spirit's choice of this word, if, does not allow any possibility. There is no hypothesis and there is no variability. He is making a declaration. What are you going to do since this is true? What are you going to do since you wanted to bark about my declaration of Pharaoh when I tell you that the potter, the creator God of heaven, has reprobated some men to judgment and elected other men to salvation? That's all the if is there for. Though it's formed as a rhetorical question, it's making a dogmatic declaration and daring you to come up with anything against it. Here is the most extreme statement of God's sovereignty and electing choices of men in the entire Bible. There's none like it. It's formed as a question to connect to what's gone before about the potter, and you are but the clay. Shall the thing formed, as in election and reprobation here, complain to the maker? Shall the thing formed... Complain to the one who formed it. It's not fair that you reprobated me. It's not fair that you elected me. Is there any limitation of power, ability, authority, or right for God to do exactly as he states here? None. Right. He's the Lord Jehovah. And from beginning to end of this Bible, he reigns and is Lord of all. And he destroys his enemies. And our race stood up in the Garden of Eden and chose to be His enemy. And we stand up every day in our sinful flesh and choose to be His enemy over and over again. And He will destroy His enemies. But thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, there's another side to reprobation, that's election. Just like there's another side to election, that's reprobation. And that's in the 23rd verse. That God from before, from eternity has purpose to have a people, a children that he's adopted to himself, and he's made them vessels of mercy so that he can show to them the riches of his glory. And that's his glorious grace. But that's for next Sunday. Today, we have Romans 9.22. What if God, God, This is the true and living God. This is Jehovah of the Bible. This is not the imagination of men, pagan or Christian. What if God, 
When we read Proverbs 16.4, the Lord hath made all things for himself, we start out in that verse with two words, the Lord. When we find that Lord in all capital letters, we know that it is in our King James Bible, the English word for the Hebrew sacred tetragrammaton, I am that I am. J-H-V-H. We know that. So when we read a verse that describes the sovereign government of God over His creation, like Proverbs 16.4, The Lord hath made all things for Himself, yea, even the wicked for the day of evil. We start out with the Lord. What God are we talking about? We are talking about the God of the Bible. And his name is Jehovah, can only be discovered and learned one place. And that's the Bible. It cannot be discovered and learned anywhere else. It cannot be discovered and learned in your human heart. You do not think the way God thinks. You don't even come close to the way God thinks. Your heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. We start with the Lord. And here in Romans 9.22, we start if start with, what if God... And the God we're talking about is the God of Romans. It's the God of the Bible. It's the God of the Apostle. It's the God of Pharaoh, who has just been mentioned. This is the God that we are dealing with, and it shouldn't be confused. Men love to imagine a God like they desire. And he has holy words for them in in Psalm 50, verses 21 through 23, where he said... I was silent for a while, and thou altogether thoughtest that I was one like thyself. But I will reprove thee, and set things in order. Beware lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. That's what the God of the Bible says, when you think he's like you. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. He isn't like us. We're desperately wicked and great deceivers of our own hearts. He has revealed His eternal power in Godhead, and you were supposed to read about that last night in Romans chapter 1. He has made Himself manifestly evident to the whole world. And they are without excuse, because when they had the truth of God, that He has eternal power and Godhead. They're able to know that there is a Creator God with a nature very different from theirs in heaven, who has eternal power. They recognize that eternal power in the longevity of the earth and the universe around it. They recognize it in the natural wonders like tsunamis, earthquakes, and disasters that take lives as if they were nothing. They are able to recognize it in birth defects and deaths in the womb, out of the womb of children of the aged by the government of God in the world. They're able to see by the things that are made by the cruelty of the animals and the voraciousness of beasts of prey, the eternal power of God. I preached message after message about this in those verses of Romans chapter 1. And you were supposed to read it last night. He's revealed His eternal power in Godhead, but they will not retain the truth. They change the truth of God into a lie. I'm quoting to you from Romans 1. They change the truth of God into a lie, and instead of worshiping the Creator, they worshiped and served the creature and made themselves images to man, to beasts, 
to creeping things. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, they didn't want to retain their knowledge of God. God gave them over to a reprobate mind. This is the God of the Bible. If you don't want to submit to Him the way He is and the way He reveals Himself, whether it's by creation, providence, conscience, or Scripture, He'll give you over to a reprobate mind and rewire your head so that you will dishonor yourself and your body with some other pervert like yourself. Romans chapter 1. So when it says, what if God? What God are we talking about? The God of these little fairies that sing? He is watching from a distance. Go home and plug in watching from a distance in your YouTube search box and listen to that little fairy tale ditty of those little heretics that have no idea about the God of heaven. They make me sick. I want to puke. That is not the God of the Bible whatsoever. The painting of that senile old man on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel? That is not the God of the Bible. God is an invisible spirit and no man can paint an image of Him. He's never been seen, never shall be seen. And that's why God hates images. When Moses saw the backside of the glory of God, what did he see? He heard words so that Moses got no better of a view than we get from reading the Bible. He heard words. The Lord, the Lord God, yes, who will not by any means clear the wicked and who will reward them that hate him to their face. That's the glory of God. Do you like it? I love it. I love it. I love him. I love him. And I thank him for revealing himself to me. I thank him for giving me life that I might know him. I thank him for Jesus Christ, my Lord. The true God is infinitely holy and cannot and will not accept the actions or persons of the wicked. Psalm 5 says, The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Psalm 11 says the same thing. Exodus 34 says he cannot by no means clear the guilty. And Nahum 1.3 that we read this morning says he will not at all acquit the wicked. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7 with me, keeping your fingers opening to Romans chapter 9. But look at Deuteronomy 7 with me. Let us briefly consider this God. What if God... We have to have the God of the Bible. It's not the God of the four spiritual laws of Billy Bright. It's not the God of Billy Graham. It's not the God of Robert Schuller, Benny Hinn, or others. It's the God of the Bible. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore... That the Lord thy God, He is God. Please understand why I'm emphasizing the third word of Romans 9.22. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, He is God. The faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love Him 
and keep His commandments to a thousand generations, and repayeth them that hate Him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack to him that hateth him. He will repay him to his face. These are precious words of description about the third word in Romans 9.22. Cain in Eden, or preachers in the last day, he is going to reject the actions and the persons of the wicked. The Bible tells us in Genesis 4.5, that God did not have respect unto Cain or his offering. In the last day, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to say to preachers who are going to tell him, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And then will I profess unto them, he said in the first person, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. This is the holiness of God. The true God, the God of Romans 9.22, the third word, is holy. The true God is infinitely sovereign. You read last weekend in preparation for the preaching of God's word, Daniel chapter 4 about Nebuchadnezzar. The sovereign ruler of the universe took the greatest, most powerful man in the history of the world and reduced him to his hands and knees for seven years to eat grass like an ox. That is how sovereign he is. Romans 9 tells us that he chose Isaac of Abram's eight sons. He chose Jacob of Rebekah's twins. And he would have mercy on whom he would have mercy. And he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. And he chose to harden and destroy Pharaoh, the greatest man in Pharaoh's generation. He is not answerable to any man, no matter what he may choose to do with a man, as verses 19 through 21 tell us. Thou wilt say then unto me, it is obvious that a question would arise, why doth he yet find fault, for who hath resisted his will? But the questions are unacceptable, because we are the creature and he is the creator. He is God, the third word of the 22nd verse, And we are but the work of His hands. We are the dust of the earth into whose nostrils He breathes the breath of life. And when He takes that breath of life out of us, we are instantaneously clay. And I watched it recently. He's sovereign. He took my mother away. He killed my mother. Because he told our parents in Eden, In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And he kept his word. I give him glory. I give him praise and I humble myself before him. And I rejoice in Jesus Christ my Savior and her Savior. Because she's rejoicing in his presence right now where the Bible says there are pleasures forevermore. What a difference between the wicked and the righteous. But we don't have time for a whole lot of that today. You're not going to know how to sing Amazing Grace unless you hear Romans 9.22 fully explained. Why in the world would you call it amazing until you've read 9.22 and you're hoping for something better?
whose hope still hovering round thy word would light on some sweet promise there, some sure support against despair. Show pity, Lord, in your hymnals. As I told you and showed you from Isaiah 45, this God tells you to take your petty arguments and your petty thoughts and your considerations and your questions to another broken shard of pottery, but don't bother him with your stupidity, your insolence, and your rebellion. That's what he said in Romans, I mean, in Isaiah 45, 9 through 10. The true God is infinitely dreadful and terrible in his dealings with wicked creatures of all kinds. Daniel prayed to the great and dreadful God in Daniel chapter 9. His name is dreadful among the heathen, Malachi 1.14. He is terrible in his works and his dealings toward the children of men. And because we've read Psalm 66 already this morning, I need not turn you to any of the many passages of Scripture that describe him as being terrible. However, I will turn you to Psalm chapter 9 or the ninth Psalm so that you can see that God is known by His judgments. What if God, what God, the God of the Bible, the Lord, He is God, and there is none other. And this Lord, this God, is known by the judgments that He executes. Psalm 9 and verse 15, The heathen are sunk down in the pit that they made. In the net which they hid is their own foot taken. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Higion, Selah. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. And they willingly forget God. They choose to forget this God. They will no longer endure sound doctrine. They want fables and entertainments to scratch the itching lusts of their ears. And so they heap to themselves teachers like Joel Osteen down in Houston, Texas that will flatter them with smooth things this day and call it preaching and call it a church. There's nothing church about it and there's no preaching about it. It's storytelling. And if you haven't listened to a few of his, you have done yourself a disservice so that you can appreciate the perfect fulfillment of 2 Timothy 3 and 4 in our generation. Look at Psalm 58 while you're in the book of Psalms. Psalm 58. This is the sweet psalmist of Israel. I like what God calls sweet. Amen. He'll turn all the nations that forget God into hell. That's from the pen of the sweet psalmist of Israel. That's sweet. It's sweet justice to those rebel enemies and adversaries of their creator. Those rebels who would rather worship an image of a creeping thing rather than the creator God of heaven. You feel sorry for them? You have a serious problem. That's why you can't think anything like God. Psalm 58, verse 10. The righteous shall see when he seeth the vengeance. I don't have time to read all the vengeance that's described in this psalm, but look at verse 6. Break their teeth, O God, in their mouth. Break out the great teeth of the young lions, O Lord. Let them melt away as waters which run continually. Verse 8 is a snail which melteth. 
from the hot sun. Let every one of them pass away like the untimely birth of a woman that they may not see the sun. Verse 10, The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. So that a man shall say, Verily, there is a reward for the righteous. Verily, he is a God that judgeth in the earth. And this is the God of Romans 9.22. Verily, there is a God. And he's the true and living God and there is no other. His name is Jehovah. Let's come back to Romans chapter 9. He laughs at the calamities of the wicked Do you know how terrible God is? Proverbs chapter 1 tells us that He laughs when the wicked come calling on Him for help. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded, but ye have said it not all my counsel and with none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, when distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. I will laugh at your calamity and mock when your fear cometh. That is the terribleness of God, and I don't have a month of sermon opportunities to preach the full terribleness of God because that's how long it would take. And we should laugh right along with God. When Hezekiah brought the letter from Rabshakeh and Sennacherib and laid it before the Lord and said, Lord, look what they're saying about you. Here's what God had to say. Isaiah 37 and verse 22. The passage that I read earlier about God laughing and mocking the wicked is Proverbs chapter 1, beginning about verse 20. Isaiah 37. Verse 21, listen to these words. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent unto Hezekiah, saying, Here comes the word of the Lord from the prophet. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Whereas thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord hath spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, hath despised thee. And laugh thee to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem hath shaken her head at thee. Praise God. This is the Bible. It's consistent from the beginning to the end. The smoke of their torment shall rise up forever as incense in heaven, according to the last book of the Bible. Romans 9.22 What if God willing... These poor little Arminians that have such a superficial knowledge of the Bible. But the Lord is not willing that any should perish. Well, if the Lord's not willing that any should perish, then none shall perish. What in the world are you talking about? This is the text I go to. What if God willing? This passage says that He is willing. So therefore, you better go back to 2 Peter 3.9 and figure out something different in rightly dividing the word of truth. Because right now you're neither approved of God and you're ashamed among men. 
And when you go back to 2 Peter 3.9, you find out that it's not written to the wicked and it's not written to the world. It is written to the elect. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why is God long-suffering and why is the world taking so long for God to burn the place up? Because He's giving you another chance to repent. The usward, the elect of First and Second Peter. Because First Peter 1 and verse 2 says, Elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. It's to usward. He's not willing that any should perish. They say, oh, who will have all men to be saved from First Timothy 2.4? I take them to Romans 9.22. What if God willing? Therefore, buddy, you need to go back to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and see if you can figure out how to rightly divide the word of truth. Because there is no contradiction in the Bible. Who will have all men to be saved? That same epistle says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Would you please explain to me how much Adam and Eve got paid to eat the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and God will have all kinds of men to be saved because that is the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2 where the apostles said that we ought to pray for kings and for all that are in authority because even God has even some among them as His elect. What if God willing? They don't know how to rightly divide the Bible. They've never read it. They've never read it in context. And they've never tried to make it fit. All they want are some sound bites to create a God like unto them. Right. What if God willing? Get this absolutely clear. God is willing. He is very willing. He is enduring right now. He is in pain and suffering. If you will allow me that use of the word endurance and long suffering, because that's what it says in this text, because he wants to burn this place up and consign the wicked to hell, but he has motives and reasons, which we will get to in the second assembly as we explain those words. He is willing. It's not because he's not willing. It's because he has his glory at stake in taking a while. And he has your profit at stake in taking a while before he burns this world up. And he has the martyrs at stake so that their brethren can come and join them before he burns this world up. He is willing. He is willing to save some eternally and to pass over the rest to their eternal condemnation. He made all things for himself, and yea, even for his pleasure. That's how willing he is. Revelation 4.11 says, Thou art worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now does that sound like a God that's not willing? That verse applies as strongly to the Arminians if they could ever get two wires that belong together of the same color in the same wire nut in their heads. The Lord hath made all things for Himself. He's made everything for His own pleasure. Because they must admit that their God is omniscient and their omniscient God knew who would reject their means of the gospel that could save their souls, but He went ahead and created them anyway. They never face the music of their own scheme. 
The great day of judgment is the climax to creation and salvation. It's all for the glory of God. The whole universe is moving toward one great day in which he's going to show the principalities and powers in heavenly places his incredible mercy and grace toward you and me by saving us and not saving their peers and colleagues, which will be consigned into a lake of fire prepared for them. Unbelievable. And we're going to give glory to God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be exalted as the head of all. And every tongue, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord of the glory of God the Father. To the what? To the what? To the what? To the glory of God the Father. Amen. Is where the whole universe is headed. And the focal point is the great day of judgment. The great day of judgment may strike some fear into your hearts, but it shouldn't. Because we can stand with confidence before Him if we believe on His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and run to Him for a refuge and bring forth good works to prove that our faith is sincere and honest. Him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. But who will come? No man can come except the Father which hath sent me draw him. He's appointed a great day of wrath and He's appointed the wicked to that day of wrath but He's appointed us to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. He is willing. Jude 1.4 says, if you read the book of Jude last night, that there are men ordained to this condemnation before of old. Now when you go back far enough in time to be before old, when was that? That's in eternity. They were reprobated. Before of old. Ordained. To condemnation in Jude 1 4. God's will in context is absolutely supreme and the only and final authority of mercy or judgment because that's what's declared in verses 15 and 16. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Does that sound like God is willing since it used the word will twice? I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Does that sound like God's willing? Verse 18, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Two more occurrences of the word will. Does it sound like he's willing? Don't you let some little Arminian that's never thought deeper than Revelation 3.20 of a John Lennon lookalike begging sinners to let him into their hearts tell you that God is not willing. What if God willing? He's very willing. I'm telling you, he's not only willing, he's under necessity of his own nature to consign the wicked to an everlasting hell. Because his holy and righteous nature has to punish every sin and every sinner. You say, but how can he save anyone? Because he punished his son in their stead. And jury, that is the extent of my remarks. The Bible declares the will of God to be the determining factor in the government of the world. Didn't Nebuchadnezzar learn after seven years in graduate school? Therefore I lifted my eyes up to heaven, and I said, He doeth according to His will. In the army of heaven, that's all the angels, He cast out many of them and elected the rest. He doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? If you were to take seven years in the graduate school of the knowledge of God, that is how you would talk about God. That is the greatest man that ever lived with the most sovereign authority of his own to ever be exercised on this planet. 
and God, and he said of God, he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And he does and is able to raise up over the kingdoms of men, the basest of men. Amen. And who was he referring to? Yes. Here's what Job had to say. He is in one mind. This is Job speaking of God. Job 23, 13. But he is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. That's the God I worship. That's the God I met by the grace of God near 40 years ago. And I thank him. I love him. I love Job 23, 13 and another 31,100 verses of the King James Bible. But I love, I love Job 23, 13. He is in one mind. He has a set purpose according to his determinate counsel and who can turn him. No one can turn God away from what he's purposed to do and what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. And what does he do in Romans 9, 22? He fits vessels of wrath to destruction. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. Two of the Psalms tell us. And many more passages of Scripture. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ was according to the determinate counsel and will of Almighty God. According to Acts chapter 4 and verse 28, the most heinous crime in the history of the world was according to the determinate counsel of Almighty God. I'm referring to the word willing. What if God willing? Salvation is no less by God's will, for it turns entirely by His purpose according to His own will. Isn't that what we read in Romans 8, 28 through the end of the chapter? And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. And who are these that love God? To them who are the called according to His purpose. What is His purpose? For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate. And whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom He justified, them He also glorified. What shall we then say to these things of God before us? Who can be against us? He that spared on his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall anything to the charge of God's elect? Elect, predestinated, called, purpose of God. Nothing can separate us from him. Because his purpose, who can turn him? And even what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. And he doeth it for us in salvation. Romans 8 taught us that. It should have. Romans 9.11 says... For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. Amen. Amen. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible tells us who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. Matthew 11 says, Father, I thank thee, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, because it seemed good in thy sight. Now, does that sound like someone unwilling to hide these things from the wise and prudent to reveal it to babes or someone willing? 
What if God, willing, what is he willing to do according to Romans 9.22? To show his wrath first and to make his power known. Couldn't he have called fire down from heaven? Couldn't he make the sun go backward in the sundial of Ahaz? Couldn't he make the sun and moon to stand still for a 24-hour period? Yeah, he already did all those things. He's got a bigger and a better way to show you his wrath, and that is to burn up the wicked in the day of judgment. The Lord hath made all things for himself, yea, even the wicked, for the day of evil. And that evil there is the evil of God's judgment upon them. What if God, willing to show his wrath, Jehovah, God, the true God of the Bible, is willing. He's very willing to show his wrath upon sinful men. Our approach to the Bible is in a minority less than 1% of 1%. Because we dare declare and exalt God's word like this. Right. The Bible says that God is angry with the wicked every day and there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. The Bible describes God's wrath extended from the singing and dancing on the shore of the Red Sea in Exodus 15 to the last three chapters of Revelation where the Word of God is riding on a white horse dripping with blood as he tramples the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 4 that judgment must begin at the house of God and if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? I read Psalm 90 that's written by Moses and Moses says that all our years are spent in thy wrath and God's chastening upon Israel and you read through those 10 verses surrounding the words three score years and 10 and if by reason of strength they be four score, yet is there sorrow, labor, and travail. And you read the verses around that. It's the judgment of God upon His own people while they're here in this world. And if His judgment is so terrible upon His own people in this world, what shall it be of the wicked? Is the comparison that Peter helps us make. God brings suffering and affliction. Those early families were torn to bits. They died martyrs' deaths. They had their assets taken away, their children taken away, their women violated in front of them. If any man suffer, let him suffer as a Christian, Peter would say. And yet, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? I repeat to you the second time, so that I make sure that you don't forget it. God helping us. Why is God wrathful and angry? Because He is holy, which makes Him hate sin. Because he is righteous, which makes him hate wrong. Because he is just, which makes him hate inequity. And because he is jealous, because he hates competitors. His wrath is not emotional folly like ours. It is by his own nature of holiness and righteousness, justice, and jealousy. Right. That his anger waxes hot against his enemies. And brethren, his anger waxed hot even against his people in the wilderness. And if the judgment was so severe against them, dropping their carcasses in the wilderness, what is the end going to be of the wicked? 
God's wrath is revealed from heaven against ungodly men, which is why I had you read Romans 1.18. You know these little Arminians that make me so sick? They open Romans chapter 1. They can only find one verse. Verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and His salvation everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also the Gentile, also the Greek. They wouldn't know what that verse meant if they had to explain it. They've never tried to compare 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with it to understand that the preaching of the gospel is only the power and wisdom of God to those who were previously called and made alive by the power of God. That to everyone else, the preaching of that same cross is not power, nor is it wisdom. It is foolishness and a stumbling block to which they were appointed. They've never figured anything out like that, and they've never read the Bible. The, The 18th verse says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Do you know what I'm doing this morning? I am revealing the wrath of God from heaven. I'm not from heaven. The wrath of God is going to come from heaven. The wrath of God has come from heaven, and it needs to be revealed. And it is revealed by the gospel, and it's revealed by God's creation, and it's revealed by God's providence, and it's revealed in our consciences when we see God's judgment fall on men. Why, even those pagan sailors on Jonah's ship knew why the storm was there, didn't they? You know, you don't set sail with nice blue skies and all of a sudden have a tsunami arrive five minutes later without knowing there's a God in heaven and somebody on ship has made him angry. Deuteronomy chapter 32, please. Deuteronomy 32. If you think I'm going too long for the morning assembly... Remember the warning about those who would not retain God in their knowledge. And what he did to them, he gave them over to a reprobate mind. Give me a few more minutes, please. Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is a description of God's anger to his own people. I repeat with Peter, if the righteous scarcely be saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Third time I've said it. Deuteronomy 32, 35. To me belongeth vengeance. Deuteronomy 32, 35. To me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. Those six words were the text for Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. For the Lord shall judge His people. And repent himself for his servants when he seeth that their power is gone and there is none shut up or left. And he shall say, Where are their gods? Their rock in whom they trusted, which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I whet my glittering sword and mine hand take hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. That is a description of God's judgment against the wicked and his own people. 
God's wrath is revealed from heaven in the Word of God. If you read, if you were to read Psalm 2, and you would read about the, He that is in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall have them in derision. Those that stand up against His Christ, that He's appointed to be the ruler of the universe. Did you hear me in Nahum chapter 1, about the vengeance that takes hold upon men, and the rocks are poured down like fire? Peter mentioned the judgment of God to Cornelius, and Paul to several men. When Paul stood on trial, he would reason of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. A fundamental aspect of the gospel according to Hebrews chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 is eternal judgment. When Paul stood on Mars Hills and he told them about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he says that was God's token that he's made Jesus Christ the judge of the world. The epistle to the Romans in chapter 2, Romans chapter 2 is already declared there to be a fearful day coming in verses 2 through 11 of that second chapter of God's judgment. Chapter 14 of this epistle is going to say that we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of those things done in our body. And Paul would say, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord in the next verse, we persuade men. What if God willing to show his wrath? And the point right now is God is willing to show His wrath and God has much wrath for the wicked. The reason men don't remember God and fear God's wrath is they have refused to retain that knowledge in their minds. God has not changed in any degree of His wrath. Hebrews chapter 12, 28 and 29 would tell us, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Not our God was, but our God is a consuming fire. What example of His wrath should you consider? For God is known by His judgments, as we have read in Psalm 9. What if God, willing to show His wrath, what example of His wrath do you want? Was he angry to damn a race of 50 billion three different ways for eating the wrong fruit? It is our race of 50 billion from Adam to the last one. Three ways. Physical death, spiritual death, the second death for eating the wrong fruit. Do you doubt his anger and his wrath? I watched my mother have the vitality sucked out of her life by having the workings of her mind sucked out of her brain to where she no longer knew how to swallow or to breathe Five months ago, this Wednesday. He is angry because He created us good and very good and put us in paradise. And we sinned against Him by choosing to obey the devil and choosing a woman instead of choosing God. Every time you're sick, every bit of pain you have, every dead person you've stood around, every lost loved one, every bit of grief because of death is because of Eden. And it's been applied to 50 billion. And you're only looking at physical death. You're forgetting spiritual death, which puts our natures at 
rebellion and enmity against God. And you're forgetting the second death in which we will be cast into the lake of fire forever. Except for the second Adam. You want to talk about anger and wrath? Too sleepy to stay awake? It's okay. I know. How angry was he to damn a race of 50 billion for eating the wrong fruit? I don't read about him in Genesis chapter 3 whining in the Garden of Eden about how sorry he felt for Adam. I just read about him telling Adam what it was going to be like in his life. Adam was already dead. He was going to die again in 930 years. And he was going to die again 5,000 years after that if he's not one of God's elect when he's cast in the lake of fire for eternity. And all God had to tell him about was his life was going to be one of misery and labor and travail and the sweat of his brow. That's how angry God was about one little offense that if we were not in the house of God and if we did not fear God, we would laugh about the lightness of the offense. How angry was he to drown and suffocate all humanity, regardless of sex, age, race, ability, intelligence, accomplishment, handicaps, in the day of Noah's flood? How angry was he? Don't you just think about the flood in some big broad brush strokes of there being a lot of water on earth and eight people were in the ark. You think about the babies in the cribs. You think about the babies at the breast. You think about the father and the mother and the children on the rooftop of the house and the water rises to where the father cannot hold them up to keep their nostrils out of the water. And the wife is screaming at her husband to save the family and they all drown and suffocate. Because God is angry against sin. Because they had corrupted His way on the earth. They were marrying and giving in marriage and they had no regard for their Creator. And the same thing happened to the Jews in 70 AD because Jesus said so. How angry was He? What if God willing? You don't think God's willing? He's already shown His willingness. The fact that I'm decaying and falling apart the fact that gallbladders are pulled out and gallbladders give people spasms and trouble and pain and that we're dying. Who's going to die next among us? God is angry against sin. How angry was he to give all the different languages to men and to force all men to perpetually separate? Doesn't he know that we like to have friends? Doesn't he know that we like to stick together and stay together? Why did he force everyone to spread all over the earth and speak languages where they could never communicate to each other because he was angry with their one-world government plans. How angry was he to burn up the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, including Lot and his wife's three daughters and their husbands and any children that they might have had? Why did he turn Lot's wife into a pillar of salt? Was he angry? Was he willing to show his wrath? All she did was look back. All she did was look back. What is so bad about that? Because God said, flee for your lives and do not look back. That's all that it takes. He said, of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is in the midst of the garden, thou mayest not eat of it in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. 
How angry was he to plague Egypt? Ten times, take their money, kill their firstborn, and drown the army. You got a two-year-old firstborn back there? He killed every one of them in Egypt. Right. How angry was he? Does he have wrath? Is he willing to show it? How angry was he to bury Dathan and Abiram alive? Those two men felt they had a call to the ministry. They felt they should be teachers instead of students. So they came to Moses and said, Moses, you're not the only one that God's called. God's called us as well. And Moses, the meekest man in the face of the earth and who never wanted the job, said by, said by inspiration from God, O congregation of Israel, get away from their tents. And Dathan and Abiram stood in the doors of their tents with their wives And the Bible wants you to know this with their little children. And Moses told them the word of the Lord. If these men die of natural causes, then I have not sent Moses. But if I do a new thing and the Lord opens her mouth and swallows and buries them alive, then I have sent Moses and not them. And the next verse says that the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them alive. And they went quick down into the pit. They went into the grave alive. He buried them alive. Right. How angry was he to do that? How angry was he to annihilate the seven nations of the Canaanites, man, woman, and sucking child, and beasts without any regard? How angry was he to kill 50,300 men of Beth Shemesh for taking a peek in the Ark of the Covenant when it came into their coasts? They were excited to have the Ark of the Covenant back from the Philistines. But their excitement caused them to take, to pop the lid open and take a peek inside. And he killed 50,300 out of a nation of 5 million people. That was 1%. We get all upset because 2,000 and some died in twin towers out of 300 million. I, I tell you, and I ask you, how angry was he to do that? How angry was he with his people Israel under a siege of the Syrians and Samaria that mothers ate their children. Remember, two women agreed, we'll boil my son today and we'll boil your son tomorrow. But after they'd eaten the first son, the woman that still had her son wasn't so excited about boiling hers the next day, so they got in a fight. It was so bad that they were eating asses' heads and doves' dung. How angry was he? Some of these are with his own people. Fourth time, if the righteous scarcely be saved, what shall the end of the ungodly and sinner appear? Right. How angry was he to kill 185,000 battle-hardened soldiers of the Assyrian army in one night and send their wives and mothers condolences from the king of Assyria? How angry was he to move the Jews to child sacrifice for their own destruction, according to Ezekiel chapter 20? How angry was he to rewire the the minds of men and women to dishonor their bodies by sodomy? For a moment, go ahead and think of the grossest aspect of sodomy that you can possibly imagine in your mind, and I want to tell you that they do things beyond the ability of your mind to imagine them. That is the anger of God against them for not retaining him in their knowledge. Right. And for not being thankful 
and for worshiping and serving the creature more than the creator. God is willing to show his wrath. How angry was he to kill 1.1 million in Jerusalem in such straits that women ate their children and Josephus knew the woman, knew her name and knew of her, a noble woman. The blood ran like a river in the street because they knew not the time of their visitation. When God visited them and they didn't get excited about his visitation, he destroyed them all. How angry was he to bruise and kill his only begotten son for the transgression of the elect. When they blindfolded Jesus of Nazareth and tied him to a post or a wall in Pilate's judgment hall and beat him in the face, there was a God in heaven that was pleased to bruise his son. Do you understand anything about the anger and wrath of God against sin and sinners? So when Romans 9.22 tells us, what if God willing to show his wrath? It's telling us about the greatest display of his wrath that is yet to come in the great day of judgment when he shall take vessels of wrath, those he made of humanity, along with those he made angels for the lake of fire, fitted for destruction, and he will pour out his wrath upon them. What if God, willing to do that, the what if is, what are you going to do to change it? What are you going to do to stop it? And what do you think you're going to say to question it? Do you know what we're going to say? But we are bound to give thanks always. To God, for thee, brethren, beloved of the Lord, Mm -hmm. because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Blessed God, and bow your heads with me, please. Blessed God, we have sinned in worse ways and more times than our first parents, Adam and Eve. We have said, whether in word or deed, who is the Lord, that I should obey him. We deserve Pharaoh's judgment. We have sinned in the sins of Israel and the sins of the Canaanites. We have not rejoiced and glorified in the day of your visitation in our lives like we should have. Our Father in heaven, we are worthy of the wrath of God to be poured out upon us. But we thank thee through Jesus Christ our Lord that you have not poured that wrath out upon us, but upon your Son, by your divine plan of salvation for our souls. And we thank thee and we bless thee and we praise thee through Jesus Christ. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for being pleased to bruise him. And thank thee, Heavenly Father, that he came to do the will of God and to give his body to be broken and torn and bruised and beaten and crucified for us. We thank you for redeeming grace. We thank you for amazing grace. And it is truly amazing. And we thank thee. Heavenly Father, help us to see these things more clearly. And to live more faithfully. And to humble ourselves. And to root out of our lives 
everything that is displeasing to thee, lest thy vengeance come on us practically. But heavenly Father, let us live the blessed lives of the righteous. And then whatever troubles come our way, we'll rejoice that you're refining your silver and purifying your gold. Our Father in heaven, we bless and we praise thee. There is no God like unto thee. And we thank thee for revealing the truth about yourself to us from the pages of Scripture. Let us go in that truth and live that truth for the glory of your Son and for your ultimate glory, that men may behold our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven, to whom belongs all blessing and honor, riches and wisdom, power and glory forever and ever, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen.